Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates on today's show. I have a very special guest, a returning guest. His name is Philip F. Nelson. And we talked back in November 24th, 2021, about his book, Who Really Killed Martin Luther King Jr.? The Case Against Lyndon Baines Johnson and J. Edgar Hoover. And that book was published in 2018. And he's a very thorough researcher and goes in very much detail into this. So I invited him back to talk about uh, his other book that he published in 2014, title of that book that we're going to kind of cover today is LBJ, From Mastermind to the Colossus. And the subtitle is The Lies, Treachery, and Treasons Continues, published in 2014. Currently in the American Amazon, it has 47 five-star reviews. Um, Philip has also written other books about LBJ in that year of the 60s. One was titled LBJ, The Mastermind of the JFK Assassination, 2013. Also, Remember the Liberty, Almost Sunk by Treason on the High Seas, May 19th, 2017. And <clears throat> Philip F. Nelson's website is www.lbjthemasterofdeceit.com. And uh, this book goes in great detail about many subjects, just how, why the 60s went back. And a lot of times, I think this book clarifies a lot of events that happened in the 60s, because oftentimes, looking back, and we're going to talk about historiography, historiography but looking back you just see one event you see maybe the attack on the u.s led liberty or robert f kennedy or the jfk assassination but this book puts them all together and you see lbj um, involved in all these things so philip f nelson welcome back to the show thanks for coming back home well thank you william so for people awesome some people who may not have heard our last interview can you kind of talk about your background and why you got interested in the subject of, JF, of LBJ and all the stuff, shenanigans he was involved in. Yes, I'd be glad to. Uh, I guess it all started at, at the point where I was coming of age, so to speak. And I'm referring to uh, about 1960. In 1960, I was 15 years old for 11 and a half months. And then I turned 16 in the middle of December. So you might say I was just 15 years old, and uh, and and I, I took an interest in the national election, the presidential election that year, because of the interesting contrast between the exiting president Eisenhower and and the uh, election of John F. Kennedy, you know, to replace him, and you couldn't get much more of a contrast than that. Well, that, that's what, uh, I guess, started my interest in the political world, as well as my, the fact I, I should acknowledge that my father uh, had always been interested in, in that area as well. And he, he used to use some words that I, I didn't know what they meant. And one, once I remember him using the word propaganda, and, and I had never... I had never heard of that word before, so I asked him what it meant. And he explained it to me, and pretty much what we all understand is the common definition of, of that term. And and I started paying attention more as to what politicians said. And I began having doubts here and there, and, and I was, it was just something that interested me, that how how two, two different, or one event can be explained so differently by two different sides. Well, in uh, 
1961, I was, I believe I was a sophomore in uh, high school, and th there was an, an announcement on the, th the third Monday of February, as I recall, it was the third uh, Monday, and it, it was announcing the fact that there was an airplane crash on the new vice president's ranch. I thought that was strange, even the guy's got an airfield right on his an air, you know, runway right on his property. And yes, that was true. And as we found out later, among many, many, many other things, um, you know, he, he had constructed that with government money and government funds, even back when he was uh, not even the vice president before that, when he was in the Senate. And, you know, strange how that worked out. But anyway, this announcement was about an airplane crash on this ranch. And, and the, at the end of it, the announcer said, but, but uh, it's okay, the, the vice president was not on board the plane, and of course he was not heard, therefore, and uh, so everything is okay there. But the uh, fact of the matter, there were two pilots killed in that airplane crash on his ranch at his behest, basically, because he insisted that they land an airplane, a two-engine, it was called a Convair 240, I think it was, uh, propeller-driven uh, engine that those airplanes could handle, could haul about 25 or 30 people. So. Uh, but it was a, that was a fairly large airplane. It's uh, something, something along the lines of an advanced, a little more sophisticated, a little larger than a DC-3. Well, anyway, they, they tried to land that airplane, but there was no, there were no instruments on that airfield. And the fog was such that they couldn't see, you know, it was very limited visibility. He insisted, he insisted they, they land the airplane though, and they did, they tried to, but in the process they crashed into a, a cedar tree grove on a hill just beyond the, the uh, start of the runway. And that sort of got buried, not only then, because it took them four days to make this announcement. That's what puzzled me the most. You know, what, if this happened, you know, last week, why are, what's it coming out now for? And that was just the beginning of the, the mysteries, and, and they deepened and deepened, but most of the country didn't see all, all these articles that were written in news, newspapers down in Texas, so they, they weren't aware of it. But anyway, in 1964, all of that was brought out, and the people were brought up to date, that is, whoever might have read the uh, the book uh, by J. Evans Haley, A Texan Looks at Lyndon, because there he explained all of that and all the background, and there's all the confusion that went on about who owned the plane even and what went on. But but he, he th there was testimony from the from two men in the aircraft control tower. Uh, who uh, who had been communicating with those pilots, and so they came forward, and a lot of the information came out that it was Johnson who insisted that they land that airplane, and he used the phrase some something along the lines of, uh, "What do you think I'm paying you for? It's your job to do this." Well, had he been on that airplane, that he would have never pressed him like that, you know. This, this is the mindset, though. This is this is. What I was gradually learning about during those those early years, and for some reason I just 
was always thought from that moment on that there was something very evil about this film. And um, I believe that over the years I've studied him enough to um, come to the conclusion that, that he really was a psychopath. He was a sociopath, a narcissist, he was bipolar, he had all kinds of things going on in his head that when combined in the aggregate made him just one evil SOB. Right. Anyway, that's that's how it all started. And lethal too. So, but his career, like he, you write in your book, and it's a recurring theme. Like he really thought to become president was to his destiny from a very early age, right? Yes. Right. He he uh, he he felt that strongly, and we we know of that because uh, Robert Caro's first book, which which was a very interesting and well done, well researched book. Um, that, that he even stated that when he was 12 years old. And he, but he also, you know, uh, further explained that it didn't just start there, that, that he somehow, when he was very young, decided that he wanted to be president of the United States. It was probably related to the fact that his father had, had uh, taken him into the uh, Texas legislature down there in Austin. He, he had been a uh, representative, I'm not sure what are the term, I guess just legislator, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 uh, Lyndon would follow him around, and, and others other state senators would would say uh, something like that that uh, it, they would call refer to Lyndon Johnson as a child as, as uh, Sam Sam Junior or something like that uh, because he mimicked his father, and uh, anyway that's. So it started young, and you said his grandmother said that he developed, he had deceptive traits from a very young age, like five five years old or something like that, like they saw it early. Yeah, Yeah, and and in fact, his his grandmother, uh, I believe was the grandmother on the father's side too, uh, stated that 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 boy will wind up in a penitentiary. (laughs) She was just certain of it. That boy is going to wind up in a penitentiary. And he would have, you know, had he had not had so much power over this, the entire state of Texas uh, legislative and judicial and law enforcement agencies. That that's how strong his his uh, power was throughout Texas. Right, and then he really developed that from an early age. I found it really fascinating. Like he had this whole mythology surrounding himself that his ancestors fought at the Alamo or San Jacinto. Which didn't—that's what he told other people to bolster himself, and it started very young. And he went to kind of a teacher school, right, where it almost like the there was almost like the, the that was the the fight that he had with the Kennedys almost took place at that teacher school. You talk about the white stars and the dark black stars. Can you talk about that? Oh well, yeah, he uh, somehow decided that he was going to take over control of the whole student body. And, and even though he was not particularly popular among the so, so-called in crowd, he got to be very popular with other people who sort of uh, followed him and, and uh, was led, were led by him into uh, something called the, uh, the White Stars. In other words, the Black Stars already, or was it the White Stars that were the good guys or the, the strongly, I guess, fraternity-based um, students 
and then the other ones were not, and they were the sort of called the out crowd, like in crowd and out crowd, and so forth. And anyway, he he managed to to influence a, a lot of uh, of his uh, contemporaries to to support him by helping him cheat at the, in the election, and so he basically cheated his way into being elected into the um, the president of the student body, right. and and he used that. And he—that's when he started learning about how to exercise the power to try to, to have people do some, well, not so uh, polite or not so um, well, legal and ethical legal. things, you know, to support him in in his quest for this power. And I think what you mentioned in the book is a lot. He told those this was the beginning, the beginnings of his secrecy. So he had this group that they weren't supposed to acknowledge to anybody else that they were together that they were, uh, would go out and do things independently, vote twice, three times, but nobody else was ever supposed to know that Johnson was the kingpin, right? On the right, right. right. And, and he, and he, um, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, I think that's very important. So you see that Genesis, the, uh, the beginnings of that, how he would use that technique or that approach all the way through his life, his political life. Yes. Well, he, he had he created all kinds of rules that they had to abide by. And among them was a rule that no three of them could ever be seen anywhere on the campus in a discussion. No, that is maybe two, but that's it. Not a third, not a fourth, of course. And and if if three showed up at any place at the same time, through through uh, and and not and silently not not through verbal expressions but through eye contact and and through shaking of the head and or whatever that the, they were to decide which of the three had to leave <laughs> and, and that was that was what he put into place and that's just a, a simple but sort of humorous example of, of those kinds of rules but, but he had control over that entire campus it was it was quite a feat, and he bragged about it for years. He, right. Even even in his last interviews, he, he went back and harkened back to those days about how how what a great success he had in, in, in breaking the White Stars. He said, and they broke, and they got broke for a long time, is what he said. Words to right. that. Yeah. Like he was glad about breaking them, even through surreptitious, unethical means. He was happy, and I, I kind of saw that duality of them being like the popular kids and him kind of not being as popular. So I kind of saw them counterpoise. Maybe I've got the Kennedys, you know, that that was like a future thing, like that uh, duality or dichotomy played itself out mm -hmm. in future, future contests that LBJ had. But I thought that was interesting. And like his family, like you wrote, I think in the intro, like there was something in the Kinsey report about LBJ. Can you talk about that? Yes. Uh, there was a, a, um, a fellow down in Houston, named um, Ray Hill. He's uh, now deceased, but when I wrote the book, uh, he was still alive, and I got the story straight from him. And he had, as a student back in the, I guess, in the 40s, had been a student at IU in Bloomington, Indiana. And, and, and that's exactly the same town that the Kinsey Institute was uh, founded at and run from. And, and so he, he got himself a job there, a uh, part-time job, 
doing clerical work. Uh, but that clerical work was for one of the top uh, the senior officials. I can't remember his name right now, but he was a senior official there. And that access got him into, you know, all of the libraries and all of the source materials and so forth that they were publishing. All the information they were publishing for people who haven't heard of this, Kinsey Institute, it was, it was formed by a guy named Alfred Hint Kinsey. And it was basically for the study of um, human sexual uh, wanderings and, or whatever, you know, it was, it was both male and female and combinations thereof. And he came out with some startling stuff in the late forties, early fifties, uh, th things that really shook a lot of people um, because it was, he, he explored all kinds of things that were, were normally uh, not um, practiced by, you know, most people. And anyway, that, that led this fellow in, into look, looking at some of the actual interviews of people that the Kinsey's and their assistants, whomever, uh, interviewed. And, and he, he knew the filing system. He was a clerk. He was a file clerk, so he knew all about how all this stuff was filed. And, and he, he figured out how, how to uh, reinterpret it so that he could go look at a file and figure out who it was the interview was with, even though that name was never really spelled out. It, it, was, it, was, a, it was coded like every, every other letter of the person's name would be spelled. And it might have even been backwards or something like that. It was, it was just a code, a, a fairly simple code to break. And he, he found the interview with, that they had with uh, Lyndon Johnson. And in that interview, Lyndon Johnson acknowledged that he had had, um, well, uh, intercourse with his grandmother. When he was 14, yeah. I mean, it's, and, and that was the beginning of his weird kind of life. I mean, he had very curious appetites, right? Well, yes. And I, it, should, it should be mentioned also. And without any, any indication of this being factual, this is just a, you know, a, a thought that is, that is generated by uh, that business that we just discussed. And it wasn't perhaps just his grandmother that he was having uh, this relationship with, it, because he was very, very close to his mother, closer than, well, if you read the any of the major biographies, Caro, Dalek, so on, uh, you know, Doris Kearns Goodwin, that that comes through. Wow, that's amazing. And Doris Kearns Goodwin, you talk about in the book, and I think she's still around and she's still talking about history. She was possibly L one of LBJ's mistresses too, so you got to consider that source, right? Well, yes. Yeah. In fact, I, I've written a blog about about that very point, a very lengthy blog that, that is more detailed than what you would find in the book. In fact, what's what's in the book is a couple of paragraphs compared to what I put in that blog. And that blog can be found on my my uh, website slash blog called LBJ, the Master of Deceit. And I think that one was about, uh, if, if, if you scroll down the blogs, Go, go down to, to, I think it was like uh, 
2019. It was very early on, sometime during 2019. Gotcha. We'll put that up. It could be 2020, but anyway, it, it's a couple of years ago now. Right. I mean, but I mean, so you have more information about this that's not in the book, as we should. That's right. Yeah. It, it does go into considerable more detail. Well, actually, there it is right there, isn't it? Uh, okay. So that's just the, that's recent right there. Right. So these are the reasons. You're blogging very frequently, too, so you, people can go check all this stuff out. But it got, kind of goes towards Goodwin, Kearns, and Cairo. Like, you talk a lot about in your in your book, like, how important it is for history. I mean, you make statements like, you know, you don't want to have the history to be distilled, decaffeinated, homogenized, pasteurized, heavily sweetened. I mean, so like, I mean, because Caro excises a lot of these stories out and a lot of these people out of his biographies and he's supposed to be the biographer of record, right? Yes. Yeah. That's an interesting uh, point that you made there. I've written more about that in the blogs as well, about the more details about how he's specifically avoided certain truths. Now I touched upon that in, in, uh, I think it was this book. I, I think it probably was a little of that in both books, both of the first two. That is, the, the Mastermind book was the first. The Colossus book we're here to discuss was the second. And I think there's more in the second book about that than there was in the first. But the, the blog, I think, even takes it even a, a step um, further. So there's issues with history. There's issues there, but he also had like illegitimate children, and or possibly illegitimate children, and, and lots of different mistresses that he called a harem, right? Well, yes, yes, he did. He talked about that. He, he had secretary that at one point it was reported, and I'm not sure who the author was, but um, but I remember it was reported that of eight um, secretaries that he had. He was, he was having relations with five, with five of them. And and I think I can tell you the, the, the ones that were not. <laughs> so it means the, all the rest. But anyway, um, I'm not sure if we need to go that level of detail here. Well, I mean, I just it's just more interesting. I'm just kind of laying the foundation of his personality because once we get into the events, you can kind of see it. So he smoked a lot. He drank a lot. He was a heavy. Like they said, he could drink two fifths at night. He could drink himself into a stupor for days. Yeah. So you right. kind of see kind of the, the mania, like driving fast and drinking alcohol in Texas. Real kind yeah. of wild man. Uh, and I mean, you said in your book, you said some people thought of him who knew him, like uh, some people who are still around today. What's his name? Not uh, or uh, what's his name? More. Moyers, Moyers, yeah, said he was like an animal. Yeah, right? Moyers said he yeah. ate like an animal and acted like a carnal animal. Yeah, and he, even worse was what uh, Busby, Horace Busby, wrote in his memoirs. And uh, there were others that, that uh, oh, I mean, well, George Reedy, and um, I, I can't think of all of them now, but the, a, a number of people who worked with him closely did write books about that, all except for guess who? Bill Moyers. He didn't. <laughs> and uh, there, there's a reason for that. I'm not going to speculate about what it is, but it is. But he, uh, I mean, it's interesting because he's kind of this old wise man who 
uh, you know, talks about myth and stuff like that. And here he is, in my opinion, kind of maintaining a myth about LBJ. Would you agree with that? Well, I do. And I, I, I just think that he's, um, he's he probably carries quite a burden, actually. So I sort of feel sorry for him, uh, frankly, because he, he was LBJ's top guy, you know, in, in 1960, late 64, in the 65, 66. And then something happened and he, he left the White House. And it's never been clear about whether he quit or he was fired. And the same thing happened to uh, McNamara. No one really knows. Was Did he resign or did he get fired? And I, I think it was a combination of both. And I think that he would have been fired if he didn't leave gone in both cases. Uh, but consider that that Bill Moyers was, he, he came to Washington to work for Lyndon Johnson back in mid-50s. I want to say 1956 or something like that. And and he came there for the purpose. And this, this comes from one of Johnson's um, cronies down in Texas, the uh, guy by the name of Harry Province, who, who uh, was the publisher of the Waco newspaper, the major newspaper, whatever it was, in Waco, because Johnson had asked him to be on the lookout for, for, for someone who might be able to come come up and work for him. And he wanted him to, to try to pick someone from um, either that college, that seminary that Moyers had just graduated from, or, or some other kind of thing, uh, religious kind of thing, um, right. for some reason. Well, anyway, he... I want to go into some detail in a future blog about this point because it really touches on a lot of things that um, explain so much about what, how, how he was able. He, he had the, um, oh, the natural talents of, of, a, of a, you know, Ph.D. psychiatrist, I think, in evaluating people and men, and he could categorize them. And he would. He he, he he knew every character trait of every senator in the Senate when he was the, the master of the Senate. And he knew exactly where to touch him, what buttons to push, what motivation, what carrot, what stick to use to motivate any particular one of these 100 senators to, you know, let him have his way. And it was often through bribes and chicanery and uh, threats. <laughs> he used every trick in the book. He knew how to, to get uh, votes together uh, be, because well, he, a lot of that came from the fact that he was such great friends with J. Edgar Hoover. They lived right across the street. And Hoover let him see any of the files on any of the senators or congressmen or anybody else, the judges and whomever, that he wanted to see. And Hoover had files on all of them. And he had a lot of that, that stuff was... Uh, was innuendo and uh, gossip from, you know, people. It, it wasn't it wasn't very filtered. That is, it it was it was uh, basically per, um, geared toward all the negatives. Right, the salacious so, stuff, all of the kinks and weird stuff. Yeah, right. So he knew all that stuff, and that was probably why he got Moyers because Moyers externally was this religious guy, right? So he could put. A good spin on what LBJ was really doing. Would you agree? That, that? That's exactly right. As, as a matter of fact, 
it, it was the, the purpose of, of that had to do with Johnson wanted a, a, a guy with um, the, who could be trusted, not not to, to, to mess, mess with his girlfriends, his mistresses, uh, but actually in this case to actually guide one around Washington, act as what they called the beard, her beard. In other words, to, to, to go to functions, social functions, accompanying her simply so that she would be available for him <laughs> afterwards, okay? And that was a, a, a gal, a lady named uh, uh, Mary Margaret uh, Wiley, Mary Margaret Wiley. And, and you know, this fellow Jack Valente, who... who um, has quite a background also. That's a whole yeah. other No, but it's kind of important because he came out of Texas, so you see LBJ farming for people from his home state yeah. and using them in certain environments. So Valenti comes up from an advertising agency in Houston mm -hmm. and then gets basically set up for the rest of his life to work in Hollywood, right? Exactly. I mean, he was, he he was, was in Hollywood rude. for four decades, like forever. Exactly. He was groomed by Johnson and with the help of um, Lou Wasserman out there, who was a big time movie mogul, uh, among others, uh, uh, basically facilitated that. So it was all worked out. And, he, and basically Johnson had Wasserman make sure that he was hired for that position so that he would be in a position for a long time. He was a young man at the time. And he would be in that position for many years and in fact it was 40 uh, around 40 years i think that, that he was out there in charge of the motion picture academy or whatever it was called and and uh it, it worked there were many cases i've, I've cited in the book uh, at least two or three <laughs> specifics where it was basically jack valenti who who killed different um initiatives by by movie producers to to uh, dig into Johnson's past. He did not want that done. He wanted that to be shut up ASAP, and that's what got done. Right, and Valenti wrote like a real positive, you know, bio of LBJ. So he carried, and I think he married one of LBJ's mistresses too. Which that was so, that same girl. Is that same right. one? Uh, so he ends up marrying her, and it just shows that this trait of Johnson, the mastermind, the puppeteer. Well. Uh, well, well, the other, catch is, the, the other catch that's related to that it, is that, yes, he, he, he set that whole, whole thing up, but that it, and it was always rumored, though, that um, the Jack Valenti was a homosexual. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. It was, it, after all, he, he was like 44 or something, uh, something like that, when he married her, and and that that was an arranged setup. And in fact, Ron Ron Kessler, in his book, one of his many books, uh, re referenced that that very point, but by saying that that, that one of Johnson's mistresses, that, that you know they were so close and so for for so long, and that, that that when she got married, her husband continued to allow her to be you know with go out with Johnson whenever whenever he would. And that that was there had to be this one. Now, there may that same thing might have happened also occurred with another couple or so. I don't know, but I know specifically. I don't know this. I I have to say that the uh, 
odds are that, that that was the one that he was referencing, even because he didn't name them. See, so I mean, that's just one. The Valenti and all these other characters is just another example. And one of the things your book shows is his ties to Wasserman and some of these other characters. He was a well-known uh, associate associated with a lot of people who were in Hollywood, which I, I wasn't aware of before he became even uh, vice president, right? Yes. Well, he, he started becoming very close to them when he became vice president. But but even before that, though, when, when he was in the Navy, he and John Connolly got themselves partnered up and made lieutenant colonels or lieutenant, well, whatever they are in the Navy, uh, uh, commanders, I guess. Um, and and their their first uh, assignment, so to speak, was was to go up and down the West Coast and 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 check facilities. You know, to make sure everything, every, all, all the uh, <laughs> it's a well-oiled machine kind of thing. And 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 they had no no experience in this at all. They were politicians both. Right. And and so so there was kind of a gravy assignment. And but he had he had promised his uh, his uh, you know uh, the the Texas the the Texas voters that, that he would go out there and, and get on the, the front lines or something. front lines right I mean he got some kind of sketchy silver star too got some award going out so that's also kind of a mysterious suspicious event yeah he he got himself out there for about a month maybe five weeks or something like that. And wound up taking this twenty-minute airplane ride, in which, in which case, and, and when it was, uh, it got mechanical problems. It had to turn back after thirteen minutes. It, came, it had to turn back and land. That's all that happened. Yet he got a silver star for that, and because he he went out and stated publicly, he was talking about this in speeches and so forth, and he had authors convinced that he had done this. And so they wrote books about it. In 1964, there was a book written uh, about that, about Johnson's being a hero out there. Interestingly, the very same year that he was running for president. So he had that orchestrated too, but it was all a lie. It was, it was trying to show that he, that the reason that the airplane had to turn around and go back was that it got shot up and he bravely stood up in the bubble, you know, on one of those um, bombers, or fighter jet. Those are called a marauder, but it had one of those plastic bubbles. That, you know, and he stood up. Well, he did not stand up. He, the people who were there, who I'm referencing in in, in my book, uh, basically said that none of that happened. None of it. And they were very upset about it because he got a silver star on that mission, and they they flew dozens of missions, dozens of much more frightening and, and, and dangerous missions. And they never got a silver star, so it was. <laughs> it, this stuff just starts tumbling out like socks out of a dryer after a while. Right, you realize that all these stories are just a deceit, right? Master of deceit, just like the title says. I mean, just constant yeah. prevarication and things like that, and lies about it, mythologizing and doing stuff like that. I mean. <clears throat> Can you talk about his coming up in Texas? I mean, it's shocking to think that so many people died around him and suicides, the quote, suicide, unquote. Can you talk about Mac Wallace and some of these other, I mean, I guess the earliest death that I thought was 1951, 
about the, the guy with the miniature golf course. Can you talk about that? Yes. Um, yeah, he, he – uh, you're talking about Doug Kinzer now. Doug Kinzer, yeah. And, and he was the golf pro. He, he had been a, in the military in World War II and, and came out with his brother. They opened a little uh, – what they called pitch and putt golf course. Uh, something like a par three, but it was even probably smaller in terms of the yardage. Uh, but anyway, they, they opened this thing, and and uh, it was kind of on a shoestring budget, and they were always pressed for cash, you know, for operating expenses and so forth. So and anyway, what what happened? That 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 point though got um, lodged in his relationship. To, to one of his girlfriends. And this girlfriend happened to be Lyndon Johnson's sister. Her name was Josepha. And and the uh, thing that he was trying to somehow get um, her to do, jo- Josepha to do, was to, to convince her brother, you know, who was who was then a senator. He was like, you know, he was, he stole the election of 1948. So as of 1949, he went to Washington as a senator, and and so this was just uh, a year or two after that in 1951, um, things were getting a little out of hand with with his sister Josepha down in in Austin. She was dating this guy, uh, um, and and also the, there was also an, another woman involved. That so there was it was what they call a menage a trois was going on down down there. And, and in public, in what is called Zilker Park. If you've ever been to Austin, it's just over the river, right on the river edge, you know, on the other side of the river from uh, downtown Austin. But anyway, so Mac Wallace, who had, who had met Josepha during the, the campaign of 1948, she had come to Washington to try to help her brother and so forth. But Josepha was a, a party animal. Well, you know, she was a party girl, and and so she liked um, socializing, you know, in the extreme. Anyway, so he winds up meeting her and also Mac Wallace's wife. So he's got this affair going between Mac Wallace's wife and Lyndon Johnson's sister. And it, it's, as I said, it's a, a concurrent thing. And, and so they, they would sometimes be um, discovered over in Zilker Park, parked in a car, the three of them, doing whatever they were doing. And, and it, it got, uh, got around. The stories were st- starting to get out about all, the, all this. And it was upsetting to all of the, both Mac and Lyndon. Well, Lyndon, and none of this is recorded. There's no paper documents but it's you can tell by what happened you know if you go back backwards into what actually transpired as a result of all this well then it's pretty obvious what happened and that was that uh, mac was sent to austin with marching orders to eliminate this problem and whatever words were spoken we'll, we'll never know but what actually happened was Mac Wallace went down there, uh, p- picked up a gun from from a, a person, a friend of his from his military days, who got to be an FBI agent. Joe shot, I think was his name, 
anyway, they, um, he, he, he went to Austin and after a few days of um, going back and forth, you know, to try to meet and talk with his mother-in-law and his ex-wife and so forth, or I guess she was still his wife then. Well, and anyway, he, uh, he wound up going down to that golf course, walked into the pro shop, pulled out his gun and shot uh, Doug Kinzer, uh, I think four or five times it was. And then he sort of calmly tried to be calm, but walked back to his car. And his car was very recognizable because it had Virginia tags on it. Here it was, 1949, Austin, Texas. And this Virginia tagged uh, 1939 blue Pontiac. So the car was 10 years old. It, it seems that he, he got to the impression or the, um, the reputation for always driving 10-year-old cars for whatever reason. And that was, that was the first such uh, illustration of that. Anyway, so all these people playing golf uh, or, or hanging around the clubhouse, saw him leave they saw him getting this car and they took the register the license number down they called the police and and within an hour or so they had arrested him and and he was he was very uh stoic about the whole thing and not too worried the whole time he was being was arrested and so forth and the reason was he knew that johnson had the power to take care of this and he did and he did, it's, right. And so the, the prosecutor and the defense attorneys uh, and and at least one sinker on the jury, they found out later, that had, had all been corrupted in one way or the other to throw this trial. Well, it, it got to be the point uh, to um, a situation where they, the jury did agree that they would find him guilty of... Um, murder with malice, a fourth aunt, which is first degree murder. But then they were going to recommend that the, the judge uh, suspend the sentence. Okay, whatever the sentence, to give him a minimal sentence and then suspend it. And so that's what happened. It got suspended. And <laughs> right, that's ridiculous. He had a five year suspended sentence, right? Yeah. And he it was he's an interesting story because Mac Wallace or Malcolm Wallace is around Johnson for a long period of time. And you said in your book, they farmed him out of the Friars Club, right? So he kind of comes from a secret society background. Would you agree with that? Oh yeah, he, he was, um, I, I'm not so sure of that. I mean, but he was, Mac Wallace had been the president of the uh, University of Texas Austin student group, student uh, whatever, union. And, and um, he was some, like the big, you know, the big guy on campus. He was an econ major, and he, he, he was he's pretty smart as, as far as that goes. Uh, but he was also evidently and obviously uh, also a um, sociopath. And that is a, a person without a conscience. And if you have no conscience, then you, you can't really do, do something to embarrass yourself or, you know, to even have, feel, feel uh, empathy or guilt for anything. That's the situation one of those and that's evidently what he was because he he shot the guy and just got ambled off to his pontiac got in drove off was arrested went through the whole 
trial thing and didn't didn't bat an eye. And even even at the trial, when when they when they um, gave the verdict, he was described. And a recent blog of mine also, I, I went through this. You know that is I I I copied that piece of it. When I say recent, I'm not sure of how recent, but uh, I should have all these memorized, I guess. But there's a couple hundred of them. So I hadn't done that. But anyway, I I started out the whole blog on, on that one with with um, you know a, a rendition of that article because it got across to the uh, the fact that he was not concerned at all about it. He, he, in fact, when when they finally got to the point where his uh, he was found guilty, then and then he was put on a suspended sentence. He he that he cracked a smile finally. There, there right. is there. that is that you? Is that the one you're talking about? Reframing yes. history with yes. more myths. In, in in that, Barton. Yeah, in that uh, section down there in the black background, mm-hmm. right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, should I read it? Sure, yeah. Okay. 30-year-old Mac Wallace stared intently at each of the 12 jurors as they fed, as they filed into the still as a tomb courtroom. As the solemn-faced men, weary from nine days of confinement and strain, took their seats in the jury box for the last time, bright, uh, Sunlight flashed from Wallace's dark, horn-rimmed glasses. If there was tension within him, when court clerk Pearl Smith cleared her throat to read the verdict, Wallace kept it out of sight. No trace of feeling creased his face as the clerk read the verdict of the jury, guilty of murder with malice in the October gun sling of golf professional Doug Kinzer. Still no expression when the sentence was read. Five years in the state penitentiary. Then came the recommendation, suspended sentence, and for a fleeting moment, Wallace's mask broke, and a faint smile played across the corners of his mouth. Judge Charles o- o. Betts had warned that there would be no demonstration of any kind when the verdict was read, there was there was none. Only a low hum in the hair, in the half-filled. I'm sorry, it's such a, a small print. But anyway, that that's that's, that was in the Austin newspaper that morning, or that app, whatever it was. The Austin there it was in the caption. But um, that was the point I was trying to get across. That he, he, he just had no concern. He knew that Johnson was there. In fact, Johnson spent that whole period of time in a, locked up in a hotel room down the block from where the trial was going on. And he had runners going back and forth, back and forth all day, t- telling him, summarizing what, what was going on in the courtroom. Because he didn't want to show his face there, of course. But he wanted to be there to control it. He wanted to make sure that it, it got done. Sure enough, it did. And Mac Wallace is an important part of the story because he continues on. And I think this article is about your conflict with Joan Mellon, who said that he wasn't involved in yeah. November 22nd, 63, right? 
Yeah, well, she yes, she she has maintained all this time. I mean, she's written a number of books, and always maintained that Johnson was was not uh, involved. Didn't didn't even have uh, prior knowledge, and uh, that's what she stood on all this time. Well, she tried to vindicate Mac Wallace and try tried to to exonerate jo Johnson. You know, hmm. you know that her book. In, in this blog, um, you know, uh, it's it's just a continuation of that, and and for her for to for her to basically base all of that on the on the uh, opinions and the memories of his children and his uh, brothers and the rest of the family uh, is is a little transparently weak to me. I mean, because there is an argument, right? So everybody goes back to JFK, and it's either Dulles, like you call in your book, is it you lay out why the central figure you believe is LBJ, not Dulles, or the intel agencies, or, uh, some external, somebody other than somebody in Texas. Like the person who owned Texas at that time was Johnson, right? Right. Yeah. <clears throat> I, I felt that he, you know, his. His um, power that he had accumulated down there over the years, and and played out there in 1963, and how how he managed to, uh, you know, re redirect everyone's attention, and that that's that's all it was about for that first year, especially the passage of all the uh, the first of the um, Great Society programs, the Vietnam War. He wanted everybody to be thinking about that stuff, not going over that rehashing all that stuff down in Dallas right and and I think all that, that sort of goes in hand in hand uh, but in, in the book that we're talking about I'm referring to the Colossus book that was published in 2014 now LBJ from mastermind to the Colossus the uh, most of it follows the assassination see because the first book the mastermind that was all about the assassination. So now in this book, we're, we're talking mostly about what he did during his administration. About 85% of the book, starting with chapter two, is all about that. However, that first chapter, that the first chapter was called The Real Lone Ranger. It was all about Captain Clint Peoples. And, and, and most people would not know his name. Could you say who Clint Peoples was? Oh yeah, sure. I, I would love to because it it turns out that uh, Captain Clint Peoples uh, had had, um, had had been convinced of something, a lot of criminal activity on the part of Johnson's part for a long time. Let's just leave it at that for now. But I'll pack in some details here, though. Um, he he had been a well. Just back up a second. Ultimately, he, he became if not the most, one of the most celebrated and honored uh, of the Texas Rangers of all time. Hmm. All, all the honors that you can get, he was accumulating. In fact, they used him as the model for for, for that Texas Ranger who's in the uh, lobby, the, the downstairs lobby, uh, when you enter the uh, uh, Love Field hmm. passenger, you know, terminal. There's this huge uh, statue 
and and he was the model for that. Interesting. And there's a picture of him from you, Brooke, right there on horseback. Yeah, right. That that's that's when when he was um, well on a probably the county fair or something like that. Uh, right. And that's 1960 because there's a there's a 1960 Ford in the background and 1960 Chevy station wagon on, on the other side. So it had to be in that 1960 or 61 era. Uh, but anyway, he he was uh, picked by the head of the Texas Rangers to investigate a murder of Henry Marshall. He was appointed in 1962, but the murder happened a year before that. That was in 1961. Right. When LBJ is in office as vice president. Right? Yes, LBJ is in office. Uh, he, he's got this uh, associate down down there in West Texas uh, named uh, Billy Celestis. And together they worked out a whole series frauds against the federal government okay the and because johnson was in such a position that he knew how how they should be set up in order to get around you know these petty rules and regulations that he himself helped write so it, it was there was just this this story can get very complex but that's the essentials of it that the two of them colluded for years, starting in the mid '50s, on a number of different things, a number of different frauds, all involving the agricultural sector, where this guy Billy Celestis came from uh, as a cotton farmer in West Texas. So, in in, um, in 1961, this, this Henry Marshall, and actually starting in 1960 and into '61, Henry Marshall was a uh, what they call an extension agent who worked for the Department of Agriculture, but in and around Waco, Texas. That is, the, I guess it's called the Western District or whatever. And, it's kind of and, central Texas. Yeah, very central it's, yeah, central or Western. But I, sometimes they call something Western, even though it's not necessarily in, in the West, like Waco is. But I'll get that, that's a whole other point that the, the federal judicial system is actually constructed that way actually but anyway so 1961 was the year that that, uh, that billy celestis mess was starting to come about and in 1962 it really hit the fan because in 1962 i, I remember that this because that's that was in every newspaper every evening news you couldn't get away from it it was in news magazines, Life, Look, Colliers, it was everywhere. And it was very confusing to me because here I was, still young man, trying to understand what was going on with this thing that my father warned me about. And it was... Um, it wasn't supposed it, to be tied to Johnson, right? So Sol Estes is independently, well, but... It, right. Yeah, that, that's why it's trying to figure out how to get across because Johnson's name was rarely in, uh, mentioned in any of any of this. And that's what caused my confusion because otherwise this was a thing that you might expect to be handled in Texas as a Texas issue, as a right, state issue, fraud, whatever. And the same thing might be going on in Iowa or Timbuktu as well. In other words, it, it, I, I couldn't understand what the, what the national perspective was because here it was, I was uh, just graduating from high school, 
and we, we took a, a, a trip to Washington, D.C. on a bus. And uh, when we all, during this time, I kept hearing on the radio and on the newspapers and all this about this guy, Billy Celestis, and, and this, the crimes that he was committing and wondering why they're making a big deal about this all over the country. And it, it became evident because it was reported in these national magazines. Okay, what, and, and, that's, and that's where, uh, you know, I got my information originally and where, where it's, it still exists. All, all of those stories are still out there if you go back and read those old magazines. Well, anyway, it, it finally uh, was explained to, to me um, when, when uh, in 1964, the book by J. Evans Haley came out and, and uh, talked about all that. And right, that was a bestseller, too. I think you wrote it was sold 7.5 million copies. It's yeah. just a huge number. Yeah. Of That's a huge kind of number. Maybe a smaller, I think it was a smaller publication. Let me see if I can pull that up. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, uh, this first chapter basically explains all of that. The story of, uh, basically it's all about Clint Peoples, who, who uh, was assigned the duty of, of uh, fleshing this out and, and explaining it in a report back to his superior, whose name uh, also actually was Garrison, but it was a different Garrison. Uh, and That's the was, book right there on screen, right, Philip? Texan looks at Linda in the study yeah, and illegitimate. Yeah, power. it was a little paperback, and he self-published that book in 1964, which is a kind of a interesting thing um, yeah very unusual you know, rare it was probably one of the first self-published type books but he couldn't get any other publishers to touch it for some reason hmm. Hmm. Wonder, why. wonder why well and this is also uh, the chapter where everything that uh, all my discussions about how johnson's uh, one of his chief sycophants in, in texas was a federal judge named H. Uh, Barefoot Sanders. Now, back in 1963, he was a U.S. attorney, and he later was appointed, actually by Jimmy Carter, to be uh, a federal judge later on. But it was Johnson who got him started, and it was Johnson who, who he owed his whole, you know, his whole career to. And so there was this relationship between them that got to be very close, and and I I. I took pains to go through this chapter within the book to detail all of that, all the machinations that went on, you know, between um, Sanders from the time he was a U.S. attorney and, to, and then he was, he was made, he, he actually went to Washington for a couple of years and worked for, in 1965, 66, 67, he, he was working directly, you know, for for Johnson, well, he might have been in the department. That's all. Yeah, you're right there. It's it's all going to be on there. Uh, but but he was with Johnson all this time, uh, always not too far away, if, if not physically, at least you know the ability to talk, you know, uh, all the time, back and forth. Well, it took um, many years for for um, for Clint Peoples to build his case against Johnson, but in 1984, after Billy Celestis was finally released from his second term in prison, he immediately came to to uh, uh, 
Clint Peoples and volunteered to to uh, tell him everything he knew and that he knew about what went on there in, in Texas during all that time. But starting with this um, homicide of, of well, I should getting ahead of myself. Clint Peoples' basic problem was that he, he had all these murders, but no one he could accuse of it, even though he right. suspected Johnson was behind all of it. But it had to start with the fact that they were all declared either, all these murders were either declared accidental or um, uh, suicide. And so he couldn't touch it. He couldn't really investigate them um, aggressively. So anyway, it wasn't wasn't Marshall's suicide? He suicided himself with five shots to his chest or something. <laughs> yeah, right, right. yeah. He he had he had been beaten up so badly that one of his eyeballs was hanging from the socket, that he was all banged up and bruised, broken uh, limbs and so forth. And and he had he had taken a a, a full hit out of the the truck exhaust because they put a. Uh, Wasp put a some kind of a hose up there and and made him breathe carbon monoxide. And then, when he was still alive and, and he heard a, a car off in the distance, evidently, then he, he decided he had to shoot him. So he took Marshall's own rifle and shot Marshall five times in the chest within a four-inch circle, right over his heart. So nearly all of those would have been a fatal shot. It was such overkill. It was and so the whole incredible. thing was messy. The whole crime scene, and so that that became part of uh, Mac Wallace's legend. He was just a sloppy murderer, and 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 did just stupid things like drive drive up in a in a, in a this car with Virginia tags. It seemed like he should have would have thought if he's going to do a murder out there, he ought to at least uh, steal some Texas tags to put on his car <laughs> to, to confuse people. And he he ended up Mac Wallace conveniently died in a car crash too later right so he, well he, he did and that, that was a controversy too because a lot of people think that that was a setup <laughs> it was it was not a really a murder and the Wallace lived on for decades and, and the last oh Vegas. interesting interesting faked yeah, his own that, death that, that's that's all um, addressed in that blog we were just looking at you know on the, the, the Joan Mellon oh, so that's in that whole thing reframing history. Yes. Whether he faked his own death. Yeah. That that whole section, that that last section has to do with that accident and and the indications that it's very probable, very possible that uh, Mac Wallace's own family, led by his father, then still alive, that uh, acting perhaps with LBJ's, you know, um, help, basically to just send him off to Vegas under a new name, a new identity, and, and put a, put a uh, corpse in this wrecked car that magically appeared out there. No, there were no witnesses to, to an accident. Wow, that's suspicious. And, and so that's, that's all out there. And um, in that blog, it's all explained. But, you know, it's, it's not the strangest thing that, uh, <laughs> that I've written about, but it's one of them. But it's strange. I mean, the whole situation of this history that's been covered up or isn't isn't put together by the court historians is is remarkable that there's so much there a lot of this stuff happened and i think it's a predicate leading up to november 22nd 1963 these are very important facts that are gone like 
that event that happened in Dallas, that cataclysmic event, didn't come out of nothing. It, it came from a history of corruption and subterfuge and deception that have been happening for decades, you know, and this is all part of it. One of the things about this book compared to the earlier book is that there's much more original research here throughout the book, basically, but in particularly this first chapter, because the reason this the material in this chapter didn't appear in the first book is because it wasn't even released for, to the public until 2012. And, and, and my, my first book was uh, originally done in 2010 and then updated and, and given to Skyhorse to publish in 2011. And then in 2012, things begin to, um, uh, well, come to um, fruition in, in Dallas. The Dallas Public Library had previously published uh, oh, uh, probably about 95% of uh, Clinton people's uh, papers and documents and, and all the records related to him. However, there was a piece that he said could not be released. Uh, originally, it was just uh, going to be after he died, but then he went back and he changed the, the rules for Dallas Public Library to hold that until not only did he die, but his wife died and his daughter died. And the reason for that is because he was he was convinced that if if it got released when Barefoot Sanders was still alive, when Barefoot Sanders would go in there and, and tear it up and, and uh, dispose of it. He, he here here was we're talking about Clint Peoples, the very distinguished, the, the very honored, one of the highest honored guys in the in history in the Texas Rangers. Right. Okay, and and so so compare the the veracity of the two of them. Well, anyway, I, I just want to read a little piece of, of one of those documents that had been held by him at his wishes, so it did not get released in 2012. Now, Barefoot Sanders died in in 2007 or 2008, and and so he had to. Then it had to wait until his daughter died. Well, she died in 2012, and then it was released. Gotcha. So, so I had sure. a, a researcher friend uh, obtain these documents for me down in Dallas. Okay. And, and so those papers were appeared in print for the first time with this book. I'm not even sure if anybody else has ever published them. But, it, but it's very important in, in relation to understanding what was going on there. And... Um, Anyway, I'm just going to start here. Please do. They were talking about, um, you said that they, they had a meeting together and they discussed the facts that there wasn't any way that they could hush Henry Marshall up. He's talking about Cliff Carter, Lyndon Johnson, and Mac Wallace met in, in um, January of 1961. This was the day before the inauguration. Johnson had a little party at his house, and and they they went to the back patio, and it was snowy out and everything. And if you remember, it was very cold and snowy inauguration as well the next day. And they were out on the patio, talking about all this, and 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 it was at that meeting 
where they discussed the fact that there wasn't any way that they could hush Henry Marshall up. I'm reading now. Henry Marshall was blowing the whistle to the degree that it was going to involve every one of them, and they were all going to the penitentiary. That's what Estes told me. Again, this is Clinton people's words here that I'm speaking. Understood. They, they knew that Henry Marshall had arrangements made, and the two days before Henry Marshall was killed, I found a letter saying that he was going to Washington. He had a meeting of his people down there in Bryan or somewhere, and he was going to straighten it out the following Monday, but he never made it to Washington. He didn't make it any further than the ranch. Estes told me that Johnson said, quote, get him promoted, give him a big job in the agriculture department, get him out of there, end quote. So, uh, peoples again, they tried it. They wrote him letters, but he turned them down. He wouldn't accept it. It's in my files. He wouldn't accept this promotion, you see. And so then when this meeting came about, they all decided that, quote, Fats in the fire, end quote. Then Estes said that Johnson said this, quote, he has got to go, end quote. And I even made a release to the press that that's the way he told me. He didn't say that Johnson said kill him, assassinate him, or anything. He said he's got to go. He tried to transfer him. I got the evidence that they did. They tried to transfer him, but he wouldn't accept it offered him a big job in the agriculture department, he wouldn't accept it. That's physical evidence. So this concludes pretty well that all this stuff is right. That's, that's one of numerous excerpts from uh, Clint People's private uh, uh, documents that, that he, he instructed would, could not be released until, well, I just said it. For, from for certain years and and that's the reason it wasn't in the first book because it relates back to that whole scene that whole scandal that was going on that relates directly into the jfk assassination so i used it as an opportunity to, to catch up on that little piece and then from then on i went through uh subsequent chapters and if you want we can talk about some of that but it's up to yeah. you yeah, uh, yeah. we got about 20 minutes um you know, let's go back but one of the things i talk about is in, in chapter two it's called master of manipulation uh this chapter reviews johnson's long history of lies and deceits including how he recruited men who he knew could be manipulated to ensure that they would perpetuate his contrived legacy and guarantee that he would be portrayed as a hero in books and film forevermore it also examines certain other authors, such as Robert Caro, and their ulterior purposes, as this excerpt shows. And starting, this is an ex excerpt from the book that, on that point. Okay. Robert Caro's interpretation of how Johnson became vice president, one that had been contaminated by multiple Johnson lies from the start in 1960, is but one of the disturbing indications that Mr. Caro has backed off considerably from earlier assertions. A few others of lesser importance have been identified in this book to demonstrate that this was not 
just some aberration or an arbitrary choice made for the purpose of literary style or brevity. Perhaps they were the result of extended editorial license allowed to someone of Mr. Caro's impressive accomplishments. In every historical account of importance, of important events, that is. admittedly, even this one, the mix of documented facts versus theoretical conjecture must be considered in evaluating the merits of the arguments presented. Unfortunately, unlike most of the chapters in Robert Caro's earlier works, the narrative of this seminal event, this seminal event, is built on a foundation constructed of unwarranted speculation. It is at odds with the contemporaneous re recollections of the credible witnesses noted and consonant only with the original lie perpetuated by the subject. Lyndon B. Johnson, known by all, thanks in no small measure to Mr. Carroll himself, to be a chronic and pathological liar. Well, that sums up a, a chapter. And so we have uh, several other chapters uh, that go on other courses, and they touch on um, such things as his use of um, some of America's wealthiest, most influential men. And that one, and, and in that regard, the, the mention earlier of uh, Lou Wasserman is just one of many from, from uh, Hollywood. Right. Um, so anyway, so we, we talked about that point previously. I mean, it is incredible. So he had all these connections. He was relying on people. He was shutting down certain shows. The Men Who Killed Kennedy, they got shut down, right? I think that guy you said, the producer of The Men Who Killed Kennedy, went back to England and yes. stopped yeah. like doing his stuff. Like he got intimidated or something like that. So yeah, he, he, he became a, a recluse. Nigel Turner. Nigel Turner. Yeah. No one even knows what happened to him. I mean, he just made that, and that's a very influential movie. And you you reference that throughout your book too, right? That documentary. Oh series. yeah, oh yes. Actually, actually, in the introductions, because it it was that book that that got that uh, piqued my interest in in the subject because I had always had. I tried to keep up with things. I read books all along the way, but all during my uh, forty years of in the corporate life. You know, I had to put it on the shelf. I, there was too, too much going on in my family life and my business and life and and so forth. A lot of traveling and what have you. And so I never really, um, you know, had the the opportunity to, to get into it until after I'd retired. Well, thankfully, I retired when I was 58. That was in 2003. And uh, that I started reading some more. And... Finally, by 2007, I decided I can't wait anymore for someone else to write this book because no one else has written it. And yet I felt I, the perspective that I had built over, over this whole uh, 40 or 50 years of, of following this guy, uh, that had, had to, I had to do something about it. I had to have to get it on, on record. And so that's what I did. Uh, the, the, the thing is, I, I, I grew so much in understandings during that period that, that I, I sort of enveloped other things and a lot of other things into the study, for instance, of, of these 
this uh, attack on the USS Liberty you just mentioned. Right. That, that, Can you talk a little bit about that? Because some people don't know that story and how it ties into LBJ. Oh, sure. Well, as a matter of fact, in this book, the Colossus book, there are two chapters dedicated to, to that, to that story. And basically, I, I believe I, I made a pretty um, strong argument that it was all a setup. That Lyndon Johnson decided in 1967, or in the years leading up to 67, that, that um, he, in order for him to win re-election in 1968, he had to, he had to make something happen because it wasn't going on. He, uh, the, he was losing, you know, on a, almost a daily basis, he, he, was, he was losing support of the, of the people of the United States who had always wondered what this war was all about in Vietnam. I was one of them. That, that it was, that, that they tried to portray it as being in the national interest. And I could never quite grasp that because there was, didn't seem to be anything in my mind that would pertain to that. So they, they wanted to, to blame it on this, on the, uh, the, the uh, communist expansion and so forth and so on. And like, this was part of, part of all that. Well, it wasn't, didn't really have much to do with it uh, other than the fact that, yeah, okay. Ho Chi Minh was, was a communist, but it was a, it was a civil war of a little, it was a third world, Actually, the LBJ used to call it a fourth world country, right. and and with no discernible uh, relation to the 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 national interest of the United States of America. I still don't understand that, but I think that it was just another con job by him to get there. Right. Well, there was the whole Gulf, Gulf of Tonkin incident, which was fake. Which is yeah, important that, that was, to the liberty and context of that. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And that, that, of course, happened in 1964. And it allowed him in early 1965 to, to start the ramp up. And uh, he continued that for the next three or four years and into uh, the 500,000 men level. Those are 5,000 at a time. But the ones coming and going through that throughout that almost 10 year period is, um, well, it was more like 3 million people, 3 million men, and very few women, of course, uh, had to deal with that. But 3 million American boys, can we just say that? They were like 18, 19, 20 years old. Right, boys. but it was a disaster for our country culturally and for the, the, the you know, they, they talk about 50,000 dead, but there was wreckage of human beings coming back and uh, the U.S. slaughtered over a million people, displaced yeah. tons of people, bombed Laos. Oh, yeah. Just horrible stuff happened in Vietnam under the auspices of LBJ. Well, yeah, and it was it was all for for a number of reasons. I mentioned one before. One of the reasons was he wanted to distract people from that little Dallas incident back there. He, he wanted them to be thinking about this and that and the other, including civil rights and and this, you know, and of course this whole litany of uh, great society legislation that that explains all of that right distraction was the name of the game it's all about what you know what what the, the magicians call slight hand. hand yeah well anyway um so the two two chapters in the colossus book examine that in considerable detail however it also explains um or it also 
put me in a position of deciding to write another book dedicated to nothing but the attack on liberty. That was Remember the Liberty Almost Sunk by Treason on the High Seas of 2017. Correct. Right. That that was published in 2017, the 50th anniversary of the attack. Oh, and that was, the attack was on uh, June the 8th of 1967. And it was, it was um, supposed to have been, that, well, let's start, let me reframe this a little bit. I document within the book that the planning for for this the supposed, you know, spontaneous war was nothing but, not nothing of that. It actually they started planning this in nineteen late nineteen sixty four and sixty five, because even in nineteen sixty five, the military had already started putting advisors over in Israel to prep them in many aspects of this war that they they had scheduled for june the 15th of 1967 can you believe this yeah they scheduled the actual start date of the spontaneous war to start on june 15th of 67 back in 65 or 66 that's how ridiculous that right, is but that's what that's not what they put forward in the public it's supposed oh, to be a spontaneous no, no, war. No, no, no no that was that was a secret all this was secret gotcha. so anyway the uh <clears throat> The problem was there. There were a number of people who had had uh, put this plan together, both in the the U.S. Men who who were direct, uh, you know, worked directly for Lyndon Johnson, Walt Rostow being one, and McGeorge Bundy being another. Uh, but others, even uh, the CIA guy uh, Helms. Um, Helms, Richard Helms. Richard Helms, yeah. Uh, and boy, what a snake that guy was, you know. But anyway, let's keep on. Let's keep on subject here, okay, William? <laughs> it's it's me that does. There's it. a lot of subjects, though. I mean, the thing <laughs> is, is that there's so many important events that happened under LBJ. It's just incredible. Well, yeah. Well, the the worst part of, of what happens yet to come. I'll, I'll get to that, but let, let me try to approach it. Well, I've only got about eight minutes, so we got to kind of speed oh, it up. Okay. Well, I the long and short of it is, is, is that it was scheduled for for June fifteenth, nineteen sixty-seven. That was in the even in the operation. It was it was called Operation Cyanide. Johnson's piece of this. Okay, so this is I'm talking about Johnson's piece, not the the entire you know uh, six day. What was what came out as the six day war that was an Israeli primary right. operation. But Johnson's little piece that he stuck in there was called Operation Cyanide. And it was about sinking his own ship and taking 300 men to the bottom of the Mediterranean. Okay, He thought that, that doing that would give him the, the uh, pretext to join Israel in this war and, and fight side by side with them to take out Nasser and, and uh, Egypt, Abdul, Gamal, right. Nasser, and that that was that was the plan anyway. But they were going to go ahead and attack the ship, but blame it on it on on Egypt. Okay, and if if they if they had sunk it and it would gone if it gone to the bottom of the sea immediately like it was supposed to, then they wouldn't have anything to explain. They wouldn't have anybody to ever question 
any of this. Right. It was essential that it go, went to the bottom of the ocean. Absolutely. Well, that didn't happen. And it was a, a, a lot of the, the uh, survivors think it was divine intervention because there were so just just one miracle after another. It wasn't just one miracle. It was a series of what have to be sort of like miracles in order to, to understand what happened that caused the ship not to sink, but to, to be uh, saved. Well, it did lose 34 men in the attack and 174 other men, almost about 80% of the, the crew, that is, was either killed or injured. Okay, so what happened then It is that after the attack, and all the men on the board had no idea what, what this was about. They didn't even know who was attacking at first because the, all the, the fighter jets were repainted over to eliminate the Star of David and any indication it was Israel. So they all assumed it was Egypt. Uh, and because and, it happened so suddenly and they had, you know, they just had to react to what was going on. Well, the uh, after the the attack or during during excuse me during the attack one of the sailors had to suddenly go out on the decks and rig a temporary antenna there was an antenna that had to be attached to a coax cable for a transmitter that the only transmitter on board that didn't get blown up in the attack uh, because it was out of order so the heat sinking heat sinking missiles didn't find it and so that allowed them the opportunity only because this hero the biggest hero of, of them all his, na his name was um, terry helbadir i think it's pronounced um, went out on the deck took that coax hooked it in and they were able to get out an sos call and and to alert the sixth fleet which is about 400 miles away with all with with two aircraft carriers, destroyers, all kinds of other support ships around it, to, to the fact that, that, you know, that this attack was going on. So they immediately uh, sent out fighter jets to, to come to its rescue. But they, after just leaving the, um, the decks of those uh, aircraft carriers, just minutes later, they were all called back by Robert McNamara on the orders of Lena Johnson. And they couldn't, they, that is the Admiral, Admiral Geese on the USS America um, on the Sixth Fleet, couldn't understand this. He says, what, what is this? We have a duty to, to, uh, to help, you know, save those guys. And, and they said, well, we have to, to get it, your, your, your fighter jets reconfigured because they suspected that there were nuclear bombs on board. Well, actually, there were two A-4 fighters or bombers that, that were headed for Cairo with nuclear bombs on them that were, they were ordered to, to bomb Cairo. Wow. That would have been disastrous because the, the, the uh, Egypt, also known as the United Arab Republics at that time with uh, Jordan and Syria, uh, they were now aligned with, with um, the Soviet Union. And, okay. and it was almost triggered, but for sure, a, a, a nuclear conflagration right over, right over uh, Bethlehem and Israel. You know, I mean, it's just 
That's crazy. Unbelievable. The rest that he was, but at, at this point, he was psychotic. You have to understand that. You have to give him some credit here. Forgive me a little last because he was mentally ill. He was going through psychotic episodes. And that and that's all documented throughout all my books. I have pages on all that point throughout each of them because I you can't lose sight of that. Everything he did had had to be explained. And I think you said that like Bill Moyer said people wouldn't believe what's going on in this what what's going on in this White House and exactly. all this stuff. Like people were like, This is unbelievable. And the interesting thing is nobody really wants to tell the truth of what happened in the White House at that time, it seems like about Vietnam and about LBJ and how crazy he was. So. Yeah, they, they had to they had to basically shut the whole thing up and the, and the cover-up that they put in was just unbelievable. All these guys who survived had had to had to deal with it alone because they were ordered to different spots around the world so that no two of them could be together. They couldn't commiserate it amongst themselves. They were ordered not to discuss it at all with their mother, their father, their wife, nobody. That's who could they, they could talk to. Nobody. They had to talk to themselves. And it drove them, a lot of them, you know, to the brink, more or less. I mean, they, they all handled it very well, I'm saying, but, but it was a very, very stressful thing that you, you can hardly listen to them without coming to tears sometimes. Some of the stories that, that they, they had to live through this. No, it's unbelievable. It's incredible. I mean, it really, I mean, the thing about this book and the last book we discussed is how great your research is. You know, you've just got so much detail and references to certain times and dates that it all, you're, it's all backed up. This is not like this is this is quality scholarship and uh, research that people should be reading. So where should people get LBJ from Mastermind to the Colossus? Well, uh, all four of my books are, are uh, featured on my website and blog called LBJ, the Master of Deceit.com, of course. You know, yeah, all one word, LBJ, just, the Master of Deceit. Uh, yeah, if you just if, uh, if you type in LBJ, the Master of Deceit, probably with or without spaces, um, it'll pop up. Right. And and uh, so the so there's a section that describes in um, summary detail, the the um, the gist of each of the four books, gotcha. and then and then the blogs. As I said before, there are some blogs in, on there that that I I've done since those books were published that that carry some of the th same themes forward, and and develop more context for some of these events and and people, and and especially uh, Clint. Clint Peoples, he, he he really was a hero in many ways. Almost no one has heard of him, but but he um, and and his work, you know, was, really is is what flipped this much much of what we know about Johnson. I mean, without without that, without know, him, we wouldn't have the kind of the insight of the totality. Because he was covering it all up. He knew he was actively covering up. I think you're showing your book. He's got people in the right place. He's deliberately deceptive. He knows yeah. how to operate with without leaving a trace as much as possible. So, yeah, really they, important for people to read these books. Yeah, yeah the, the 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 order that these these um, Navy guys got was was you know you, you will not discuss this with anyone 
or or else basically but it was it was but because you will be imprisoned or worse okay it was the, the or worse thing what's worse than prison death uh, yeah i guess that's the only thing i can think of all right i gotta run again the title of the book is lbj from mastermind to colossus with author philip f nelson and i will put a link to your website in the show notes thank you so much for your time well thank you william i appreciate it all right, all right,